You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Today, we have a familiar face with a new twist. Dan Rasmussen, the CIO and founder of Verdad Capital Advisors, is joined by his colleague, Greg Obenshain, Verdad's director of credit. Dan and Greg update their fool's yield thesis that Dan has presented to Real Vision members in the past after the recent chaos in credit markets. They discuss the credit sell-off over the past two months, especially the areas of financial markets hardest hit by financial acceleration. And... They discuss the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of potential returns coming out of this crisis. They touch on the biggest factors for returns in corporate credit, the current landscape of the energy market, and where they see the biggest opportunities for investors. Whether or not you have skin in the game in the credit markets, you will find this conversation very informative. Enjoy. I'm Dan Rasmussen, the founder and CIO of Verdad Advisors, uh, and I'm here uh, hosting a conversation on behalf of Real Vision. We're talking today with Greg Obenshain, who's Verdad Advisors Director of Credit. Uh, Greg has spent the last few years studying the high yield bond and corporate credit market through a quantitative lens, um, building uh, one of the largest quantitative databases. Uh, of individual corporate bonds uh, ever built uh, and studying what predicts returns uh, within corporate credit uh, and looking at the market through, I think, a very interesting uh, analytical lens. Uh, So I want to start. Thank you for for joining us uh, today, Greg. Thank you for having me. Greg, could you start by telling us about, you know, you've written a lot last year and early in 2020 uh, about what was going on in credit markets. Could you talk about your thesis then? Yeah, sure. So for the last several years, we've been in what what, what we call and we we call internally the the fool's yield environment, where uh, there's been a substantial reach for yield, and and that can be very difficult to define, um, because what what does reach for yield mean? But uh, for us, it's the you know we we actually think it's when it's reaching down into the bottom parts of the high yield market where you think you're going to get a seven percent yield, an eight percent yield, and you think that you're you know a really smart analyst, so you can get this. Um, but in fact, what you end up earning is a four or a three percent because your base rate of loss is such that it's very hard to do better than what the double B market or the higher quality high yield market does. So for the last 12 months, we've been pretty vocal about this fool's yield idea, saying that you know the probably the best you could do is a four percent return. Um, and that what we were seeing in private credit markets, what we were seeing in some of the riskier uh, loan markets, um, was uh, not really sustainable behavior. Um, and that especially pension funds who'd started to allocate a lot of money um, to private credit, and particularly sleeves of private credit that were doing deals with very high leverage um, in particular, um, were, were really engaging in much riskier behavior than they perhaps realized. So, Greg, when you say fool's yield, I think what you're arguing is that above a certain point, credit risk doesn't pay off. Uh, so if you lend to someone with a 20% yield, uh, the losses are going to outweigh uh, the returns. And I think a lot of folks intuitively understand this, that you know a 30% payday loan probably isn't going to yield 30%. You're not going to get the money back. Uh, but tell us how you got to the exact number. I mean, how, how do you sort of locate 
where on the current market spectrum uh, the fool's yield is. What's your process? How did you get to that? What was the research that led you there? One of the hardest things to do um, in, in credit is to look at a bond by bond level analysis of what's happened in the past, right? To go back and really dig into that. We have index data, that's what everybody has, um, but really that's a very crude cut of, of what's going on. Um, so what I spent many years building was a bond by bond database, basically, where you could go back and say, what happened when we bought bonds that traded like they were in the lower half of high yield? Right, that that traded with yields that suggested they had risk. Did they actually return their yield, or did they return yes, uh, less? And when we stacked all those up, what we saw was that bonds that um, were trading as if they were riskier actually had lower returns. So they didn't realize their yields, whereas bonds that traded as if they were higher quality in sort of the higher part of the high yield market actually did make their returns and actually a little bit more. What's surprising, and I think would be surprising to most people, is that last year when we could sort of figure out the dividing point of how far you needed to step down the, really, the, the implied credit rating spectrum, where you started to take more losses and you got in gains from taking on more yield, really happened much sooner than most people think. It happened sort of that, that double B to single B split. And, and for those of you not familiar with the high yield market, you have... Um, really three parts of it, the double B part, which is the highest quality, the single B part, which is the middle, and then the triple C part, which is the lower part. And, and that, that fool's yield dividing line really happened um, sort of between double B and, and single B over history. Um, that meant that last year, 4% yield was probably the best you were going to do. And I think that is surprising for especially people who are trying to get out and find a seven and believe they can find a seven or eight. It's actually much, much harder or was much, much harder than um, you'd think. So fundamental analysts, I think, and Greg, you, you began your career as a fundamental analyst, often think of the way to approach high yield is going to find a high yielding security and then underwrite it um, uh, to make sure that it'll actually return that yield. But what you're arguing is that the base rates of return are actually better at lower yields uh, because those bonds tend to get upgraded then to earn their yields, uh, whereas the lower yielding stuff, no matter how good you do your due diligence, uh, something surprising inevitably happens uh, that, that, that was in some ways priced into that risky security and you don't earn your yield. And I think that's a very fitting segue into what we've seen uh, so far this year, which is a big surprise. I think nobody anticipated exactly what was going to happen, that we'd have a global pandemic, that we'd be uh, working from home. Uh, uh, everyone will be working from home and what would have happened to credit markets would have happened. I think everyone was fairly bullish in January. In fact, there were a lot of analysts putting out reports that were saying that the biggest opportunity in corporate credit was in the triple C space uh, because that had lagged the market in, in 19. Uh, so Greg, tell us what's happened uh, over the past three months in credit markets and where we are today. Yeah, and it's, it's not even three months, it's really two months. Um, it's been it's been quite um, quite rapid. This has been one of the most rapid sell-offs I think in credit markets as well as equity markets, as everybody knows. We've really gone from what were um, on the high yield market a five and a half percent yield to a nine percent yield on high yield um, in in the course of just over a month. Um, and you know the high yield spread now is at a level last seen in 2009. And in fact, when you look at historical episodes when we've passed through the spread level where we are right now, or the 
yield level is the easier way to think about it on the high yield market. The, the dates are, are going to be uh, familiar. It was September 2001, and it was September 2008. So it was 9-11 and Lehman. And when you go and you look at those periods of time, you you are at the beginning of, you actually realize a whole lot of the sell-off in the equity market, and you'd actually realize most of the sell-off in, in the high yield market by that by that point. Um, so we're really at recession levels um, right now in high yield. And there's a whole lot priced in that was not priced in before. So where do you think, I mean, you were uh, rather bearish uh, saying that the best people could earn was 4% a few months ago. I think very vocal about criticizing the private credit markets. Uh, where are you now on the bearish to bullish spectrum on high yield, Greg? I mean, I have to say that I've gone from being um, bearish to uh, I'm, I'm I feel like you have to flip to bullish now. The numbers are what they are. We are at high spread levels. You are locking in returns on companies um, that you've heard of. These are large names um, in 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 high quality, high yield that are yielding five, six, seven percent. I mean, some of the names are like Levi Strauss, NRG Energy, Netflix, uh, Charter Communications, Match Group. These aren't these aren't small names that are giving you five, six, seven percent. Yields where, yes, their numbers are going to be terrible. Uh, yes, we know that the environment has dramatically changed. No, we have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, but I think if you are a pension fund who is out taking a lot of risk, trying to find the seven or eight percent or six, seven or eight percent return you needed, uh, this is a gift. Um, you don't get this opportunity very much. One of the things that we've spent um, some time doing is going back and looking at those past crisis periods and saying, okay, when, you, when you've had a spread widening and an equity sell-off like we've had now, uh, not just in the history, in, in, the, in the period of time where we have really good history, but going back also a little earlier to 87 and the recession in 1990 and saying, if you had to make a choice about what to buy um, and you dove right in, what would be the best thing to buy? And the answer isn't equities because it usually takes equities as you, and you can speak to this. And I'd love to have you talk to uh, about what you're seeing in equity. But it usually takes two to three months um, for uh, the pain to play through in the equity markets. You usually have you know, more downside from the initial spread widening or equity sell off. The same is not true for high yield. Um, with the exception of 2008, which was a financial crisis, uh, you, within a month to six months, were already into positive returns and almost always into positive returns after 12 months. And those returns were substantial, um, substantially more than just what the yield said you would earn um, because uh, you had spread compression, not even all the way back to where it used to be, but you just had improvement in the underlying um, uh, in the underlying spread environment. Um, so we look at the environment now and high yield has sold off just as rapidly as equities, except these are contractual assets. They have a maturity date, they have a coupon. A lot of the uncertainty is inherent in equity. Um, what are earnings going to be? What are the? You know, are they going to add more debt to layer you? How, what, what's going to happen in equity aren't really as difficult to figure out in debt because if you're, especially if you're sitting below a large equity market cap, um, it's really just a question of whether they pay off or not. And that's a much more tractable problem. And what have you seen in terms of the last few recessions, Greg, about the base rates about, you know, let's say you bought triple Bs, double Bs, single Bs, and triple Cs, you know, right before the recession and held them through, you know, what percent of these things are going bankrupt and what percent are paying off? You know, where do you earn your yield? 
Uh, and where do you get crushed in credit? In a crisis like um, now, uh, your obviously default rates go up over the next five years. So single Bs are going to default at something like a 30% cumulative default rate. Um, triple Cs might even be higher than that. Um, so companies that were in trouble before or had risky financial uh, financials before a crisis obviously get whacked. But yield and in double Bs, it's actually a lot better. It's 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 ten percent or even or even below that it will eventually default over a five year period. Um, and and but, most of those will get downgraded before they default, right? right? So, so you know, if you are rebalancing in double Bs, you're basically okay. Yeah, and this is one of the great you know misconceptions about, especially we'll just talk about triple Bs as well because there's been a lot of people bearish on triple Bs and they've actually been actually performed quite well um, in this downturn relative to um, lower rated credit. Uh, nothing ever jump to default is what we call it. Things don't jump to default. They go through restructurings before they file. Uh, they get downgraded. It's it's a process. It's something that takes a long time um, to come to fruition. And so you, which you really you don't you don't have a bond just go from par to zero. That doesn't really happen. It, it takes a while. Um, and all that time you're earning your yield or you're earning your coupon. So. When yields are high, like they are now, you are getting compensated for a lot of that loss. And whereas we would have said, don't even bother going below double B uh, nine months ago, um, and did say that. Um, now you can actually reach a little more down into the single B and maybe and maybe even did some triple Cs um, and have a lot more protection because you're earning so much on the carry. And so... That is that's the the margin of safety, if you will, that you get in high yield with with higher yields right now. Right. So, so Greg, you know, let's say, uh, you know, we, we've talked before about this concept of the financial accelerator, um, that as funding gets cut off, as new lending gets cut off, as refinancing risks spike, as market volatility starts to scare investors away from pretty much doing anything. Um, that, that financial accelerator really whipsaws through the market. Um Let's talk about, you know, you've talked about triple Bs. Um, you sound pretty bullish on triple Bs. If that financial accelerator hits, where do you think is going to be hit hardest? What sectors of the market, you know, what is the sort of, uh, you know, CMBS explosion of 2008 today, right? Where do you really see problems emerging if this type of financial accelerator continues to accelerate? Yeah, and, and, we've, and we've written about this quite extensively, and, and it's really in in anybody who's taken on a whole lot of leverage and left themselves with no flexibility. Because this is an environment where you need flexibility to get you, you through. And, and obviously, um, private equity funding, and done through private credit and also done through the leveraged loan markets, is done at very high leverage levels. Uh, because it has to be. To win a deal, you need to put a lot of leverage on your, on your deals for the most part, especially for the big mega deals. And so, um, it's just not possible. These companies are in a position where they will probably need to take on new debt um, or restructure their debt in order to be able to survive this environment. Um, they might not call it default, but it is going to be equivalent of default. And, and the the hidden the, the problem with leverage uh, isn't so much the dollar portion of leverage. It's it's that you need to service that debt. Uh, through interest payments. And that diverts your ability or prevents you from reinvesting in your business. Um, and so one of, the, one of the, I think, surprising things about companies that are reasonably levered in the higher part of, part of high yield is 
you know, they have enterprise value um, to debt coverages of you know anywhere from two to four in some ridiculously higher times. And so uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot. You know, they could easily add more debt. Um, but a lot of these businesses actually reinvest in their business. Um, and um, and that's not something you can do if you put a whole bunch of debt on your balance sheet. You've taken away all your flexibility. There's those companies that have preemptively eliminated their flexibility before a crisis that are going to be in a lot of trouble. So, you know, I think you and I share a similar bearishness on what had been going on in private equity, right, where deal multiples have been going up and up. Those deal multiples were funded by very cheap debt coming from the private credit market. And I think, you know, as recently as a few months ago, we were seeing deals that on a gap basis were probably done at about 16, 15 times EBITDA on average with seven or eight turns of net debt to EBITDA. Um, Greg, from your, you know, analysis of individual credits, you know, what's that debt to EBITDA level where you get really worried and say, gee, you know, a, uh, a you know, any sort of recession or, or market volatility is going to wipe that company out or put it in a pretty difficult position. And what percent of private equity and private credit would you say today is you know above that threshold? Um, and so we're talking debt to EBITDA here, which is actually interesting because it's actually not the greatest metric to use, right? Free free cash flow metrics and other metrics work better, but we'll, we'll talk debt to EBITDA because I think it's a, a good shorthand uh, for what how people think about it. And um, uh, so debt to EBITDA, I mean, traditionally a really good say, a safe loan would be at three times. Something that would stretch would be at five times. Um, almost all private equity deals now are done well above five times. And when you do um, unadjusted EBITDA, so without all the gimmicks, um, you're looking at deals that are six, seven, eight times um, levered in some cases. Um, the, the truth is in an environment like this where you have um, a really substantial hit to cash flow for a lot of businesses, even four or five times is going to be difficult. Um, that's still a lot of leverage. Um, and it's going to cause a lot of pain. And equity holders um, in the public markets would never fund that kind of business. Those are the, exactly the kinds of businesses in the public equity markets right now that are getting absolutely hammered. If you're a public equity analyst, one of your first questions right now is how much debt does it have? Well, if you did that for private equity companies, I mean, I, and actually saw what, what would happen to their equities if they were traded in the public markets today, um, it would be brutal. Um, it would be absolutely brutal because there's nobody wants companies that have um, a leverage that could bankrupt them. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. And and so we're looking at a market. I think I think it's really interesting. You know, I think there's a lot of contrarian ideas packed in here. I think one is a relative optimism about uh, triple B and double B uh, credit right now. I think what I'm hearing from you is that, um, you know, historically buying that type of credit owning it through the cycle, you've gotten paid. In fact, it seems like what you're saying is you've actually, in some cases, earned more than their yield. Um, and right now, when spreads are this wide, you know, walk me through the math of if this recession normalizes, if spreads go back to normal, and you buy a, say, a six or a 7% yielding, you know, double B bond, you know, what are you gonna, what are you looking at from a total return perspective? Yeah, if you're looking at it, say a six percent bond that you buy, and let's say the treasury component of that is, we'll call it one percent, and so your spread is five hundred, right? Five hundred over over treasuries. Um, 
Well, I mean, historically, double Bs have really traded in the 250 range, call it, right? So you have 150 basis points of, uh, of tightening potential over two years. Let's call it 75 basis points a year from just from spread tightening. Two, two, 250, I mean, sorry, uh, 500. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's 250, sorry, 125 of spread tightening per, per each year. Call yeah, it, yeah. Each year, yeah. Um, and let's say the average duration in the high yield market is sort of four or five. That's just a measure of sensitivity to change. We'll call it sensitivity to change in yield, right? So um, it's a four, but you know, in addition to your 6%, every year you're earning an extra 4%. Um, so you're getting on average 10% returns um, without anything else happening potentially. And you can get much higher than that, right? So um, when we do the calculations, we're getting sort of mid, you know, we'd estimate, and this is obviously just an estimate, that you have potential to make, you know, teens returns annualized on relatively safe credit. Um, and that seems to us to be a very, very good opportunity. But um, whereas if you think about equities, I think when we do the math right now, I think equities do have a lot of upside from um, recessions, and you can and talk about this, but that opportunity doesn't usually present itself for another few months once you've had the initial sell-off. Yeah, that's right. And I think the other thing that I, I would note is about valuation levels. Uh, you know, we're coming into this crisis, we've had a, a, a very unusual market, you know, or maybe a market that looks a lot like 99, 2000 in some ways, where you had, um, a few corners of the market that were really, really overpriced, right? or from my perspective, overpriced, right? You had large growth stocks trading at multiples near all-time highs. You know, the only times we'd reach multiples like that in large U.S. growth names were 99 and 73 or so. And yet, in contrast, you know, small value and even large value names uh, were trading at pretty uh, historically average valuations, right? So very normal, um, well uh, you know, the large growth component was just trading at these crazy prices. And then you had international equities uh, trading, you know, at a discount to long-term averages. Um, so just those pockets of the market that were really overvalued, and of course, private equity, you know, value like large growth, uh, which is a pretty scary thing, given that those are much smaller companies with a lot more debt. Uh, but, you know, historically, I think if you look at a 2000 or 2001 scenario, uh, you know, I think a lot of the wisdom of the past decade has been just buy an S&P 500 index fund yeah. um, uh, uh, and you, you'll be fine. Um, uh, you know, coming out of that 2000, 2001, uh, you know, period, Greg, you know, if you if you if you start in September 01, you know, should you bought the S&P 500 or, or should you bought corporate credit? You know, wh where would you have done better and, and what, what sort of played out from there? And it, it really depends on the crisis, but the, the themes that sort of come out um, across all the crises um, are that the S&P 500 um, versus the Russell, um, it's actually the Russell that comes back first. It's actually smaller stocks that come back first, um, not the S&P, and especially in the 2000 timeframe when those valuations were so high that it, it that was the S&P 500 that really took, took the, the brunt of it. In all cases though, it's really um, the contractual obligations, the corporate credit obligations, where it's much easier for investors, and, and it makes sense, right? It's just much easier for investors to wrap their hands ar around what's going on. Um, you can, you've got a bond in a company, you sort of figure out what it's gonna pay. Most of these investors are probably buying it for the yield, right? They're, 
they're not actually playing for the upside, but because it's a sort of an obvious and easier play, it corrects much more quickly. Um, so it's a much more understandable problem for most investors, um, and it's also a lower risk way to play the recovery. So I think it, it attracts a lot more attention faster. Early on, yeah. So, Greg, I think one of the issues, you know, you mentioned earlier that X energy, you know, high, where's high yield X energy, which is a question we get a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I know you began your uh, career as an energy analyst. Um, you know, what's your view on U.S. energy and U.S. energy credit? I mean, would you, you know, you've been fairly bullish today on triple B or double B credit. You know, would you be a buyer of triple B or double B energy or U.S. shale credit right now? And where do you see that ending? Yeah. So moving from um, just overall valuation levels and then sort of starting to think about individual companies and how I think about individual companies and what I look at. Um, one, one of the parts of, of, of my process is to obviously go through the actual financials of the company. And, and uh, I'm, as you said, I'm a former energy analyst, so I've spent many, many years uh, looking at en energy financial statements. Uh, and there's just been a fundamental problem in the U.S. that is um, and in, in the shale plays, which has been highlighted by a lot of people, that they actually just don't generate cash. So on the metrics that we look for um, in credit, uh, which is you know, free cash flow to debt, real free cash flow to debt after CapEx, um, and, um, and measures of return on assets and other return measures, um, you know, energy has never scored that well. Um, and the fundamental problem is that they consume more capital than they produce. And this was true in a much higher oil price environment. So, so much of the... Uh, the debt that is in high yield and energy is actually not towards global multinationals. It's towards these U.S. shale plays, um, which really haven't proven to be profitable. Um, so there was a bigger fundamental issue that was happening um, within U.S. shale plays before all this happened. Um, the fact that you've had a massive oil sell-off at the same time that you're having a bit of a credit crunch uh, just seems a, like a one-two punch for them. Um, but there were more fundamental problems in, in energy before. So I don't, I wouldn't say I look at the, the world and say, buy all of high yield, buy energy because it's cheap. Uh, that's certainly not the, the argument at all. Um, in fact, when we go and, and do our research on what to buy in a crisis in debt, it's really obvious things that actually come to the top. It's buy big companies with high free cash flow to debt with high returns on capital. Buying public companies really helps too because there's some private companies and actually public companies do better, um, obviously because they have more access to capital. But when you, when you start to go look at what works, um, the energy companies really don't meet the return on investment and free cash flow uh, metrics that are in that. Um, so they actually would, even quantitatively, would not pass the screen. Yeah. So I think that's a nice segue into talking a little bit about uh, what your research has um, led to, Greg. I think, and I think it's a bit of a different way of thinking about high yield and, and corporate credit than a lot of people are used to. Coming from sort of the factor uh, research into U.S. equities, you know, the the factors that Fama and French have identified, uh, which are uh, profitability, uh, investment size uh, and value, uh, right? So you're looking essentially for small companies that are really cheap, um, that are not investing and thus generating free cash flow and that have you know pretty high profitability, basically return on assets metrics. Um, how does that compare to credit? You know, is what Fama and French found in 
uh, in stocks? Does that sort of map directly onto credit? Should I go buy, you know, the smallest, highest yielding, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, bond issues? Or what, what, what is what is your research found generally? Uh, and then after that, I'd like to shift to sort of saying, hey, what's different in a crisis? But in a normal market, what have you seen to be the big factors that predict corporate credit returns? Yeah, so when you think about corporate credit, you need to uh, understand that um, the easiest thing to do would just be to, I mean, if you put, if you put yield in as a factor, right, it's going to be highly significant, right? And you'd, you'd say, okay, I should just buy the highest yielding things. And, and you very quickly find out that that's a bad, bad idea. And, and the reason is that the market's relatively efficient at pricing things on a relative value basis. If this bond yields eight and this yield bonds, bond yields seven, most of the time there's really a good reason why there's right. a difference. So in some sense, yeah. you're making an argument for market efficiency, right? That yeah. no matter what the yield is, you're gonna the yield should should deliver the same return. It should uh, deliver the same. should be at that fool's yield level between double B and single B, right? It's just a flat line. Okay, you can tell me that the yield is this, but if markets are efficient, you know, you're just not going to get anything. There's a maximum you can get in terms of credit risk premium. And no matter what that yield is, it doesn't really matter. You're de-emphasizing yield, right, which is a very contrarian view, I think. Yeah, and and we're able to do that because the very first thing we do is say, well, hang on, before we apply all these factors, let's just figure out how the world works, right? And the observation on how the world works is, Wait a minute. There's a whole portion of this this market that is in you could say that incorrectly priced or priced because people there's all sorts of reasons you can come up with efficient market reasons why it's priced that way. But you get your highest returns in a, in, a, in one particular segment of the market, which is that segment just below investment grade. So once you focus there, then you say, okay, what's the way you make money? Well, there's not a whole you know there's differences in yield, but what really matters is are the credits getting better, right? Because if you're getting better, you get that effect that I talked about. The, the pricing changes, the spread changes, and you get a, and a move up in price. And then but it, by the, conversely, is the credit getting worse? Right. So, so if markets are efficient, the yield yeah. is going to be not the best predictor. What you want to say right. is what gets upgraded, right? What, you know, what credit improves in quality such that I got a repricing and the yield, even on a relative basis, different tomorrow than what it is today. Um, so what predicts upgrades? What, 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 you know, I think you've talked about sort of this, yep. you know, Goldilocks area, right? Right below triple B. That's the place with the highest percentage of upgrades. Um, but if you're going in and looking at those, you know, just below investment grade things that could get upgraded to investment grade, you know, what helps you separate, you know, what are the factors, the quantitative factors that help separate the stuff that moves up from the stuff that moves down? And this is where you start to see that it actually, um, mimics a little bit what you see in the other markets, but not always. So for size, let's start with size, because that's different, right? Bigger companies, if you have two companies that have the same yield, right, and you have a, one's bigger than the other, the other, the bigger one is much more likely to get upgraded. It has more options. It's probably been around longer. To get big in the first place, you have to have some level of success. So it's almost a quality measure, right? So when you think about the universe and you say, okay, let's just look at everything that has the same yield and then start comparing them, you can you get some interesting observations. The other thing is, I mean, profitability does work in credit very, very well. Um, and developing sophisticated measures um, to measure profitability, not just uh, the traditional ones, and trying to really think deeply about how to measure profitability is, gets you very, very far in corporate credit because companies that are profitable can reinvest um, in their business, they can grow, uh, they can grow organically, and they get imp- they improve over time. Uh, so that that's, that's very, very important. Um, what, but, 
one of the other things we've really spent a lot of time understanding as well is not just where the agencies um, rate rate a company, but where they would rate the company if they updated their their ratings very frequently, right? Which they don't intentionally. The rating agencies, by the way, this, this is not a criticism. Their job is to keep stable ratings over time. So they're not trying to time the market. But you can see very easily when a company is improving and when those metrics are getting better and when um, you can when the, the actual implied rating by the financials is much higher than what the rating agencies say. And then you can also see where the market price is in. So when you get a disconnect between any of those three, um, you can get a good sense of which way the bond should move on average um, over time. So that's almost a that's that's really a kind of value metric, but just done different in different ways. Right. It's remarkable how uh, commonsensical these rules are, right? I mean, I think you sort of think of in everyday life, you know, would I rather lend to the guy with 100 million of assets uh, who owns a, a tech business that's compounding every year or the person with 100,000 of assets that, uh, you know, owns a, a car rental, you know, business, right? And, and you'd say, well, obviously the bigger guy with the, you know, compounding business that's highly profitable, not the guy with the depreciating assets who doesn't have any assets to begin with. Uh, and yet you see, it seems like, Sometimes in the credit markets, those things are priced at the same yield. And those are two extreme examples, but intuitively, it's quite logical. I'd rather lend to the larger, uh, larger company, the richer person. It's, you're, 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 of course, it's more credit worthy. And then I think second, you know, the intuition that uh, companies, the higher return on assets or a higher return on equity, you know, of course, like that, that seems very logical that those are the people you should lend money to, right? Because, you know, they've got to earn a higher return on equity or return of capital um, than the rate at which you're lending to them. Um, and I think when you talk about shale, what I'm hearing you say is, gee, I'm not convinced that the return on assets or the return on investment in shale is above the cost of debt, right? Which is a really, really scary thing. Yeah, and, and in one way you can define high yield in the middle of high yield, actually. If you, people, you know, they have these number ratings and these letter ratings, and it's not very helpful. Um, one of the ways that I think about sort of single B and below credit, the middle of high yield and down to the below, is that the cost of interest on your debt is in excess of your return on assets. So you're slowly, if you were to completely debt fund your company, you wouldn't be able to, to do that. You're slowly liquidating. And so you see these companies that take on more and more debt with higher and higher interest rates, um, and you can just see that they're slowly liquidating the company, the equity value is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and so a useful mechanism to think about credit is you only want to invest in credit when it's very clear that the company is organically able to return at a rate that is higher than the debt they're taking on. And it sounds very obvious, but it takes quite a lot of of work to get there and make that comparison. That's great. Well, let's return, I think, back to the beginning of this conversation, Greg. You know, you're you've been watching the markets uh, very closely. What's your advice to investors right now at this moment? You know, how do you think they should be positioning their portfolios? How should people be reacting to this market? Is it time to panic? Is it time to sell? Is it time to buy? And then if you are selling or buying, what should you buy and what should you sell? You know, how do you see the lay of the land? You know, what are you uh, what are you thinking about right now? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I'm watching the high yield markets very closely um, right now. And I think uh, there's enough opportunities now coming up in companies about which you don't need to be that concerned, even if you cut off cash flows for three months or 
Um, you you think they're the, that we're going to fundamentally change how we live based on what's going on right now? There's still plenty of companies out there right. that are so going to be fine. You mentioned which were Netflix and Match. I, I can yes. see people watching Netflix and doing online dating yes. even more now that people are working from home. So yeah, it might be it might be Skype days, but yeah. <laughs> The uh, but um, so I think I think those you know th those are the kinds of opportunities where you're seeing you know decent yields um, and I, I don't think that's a hard investment to make um, when it wasn't available to you six months ago there was there was no place you could go get a really good five or six percent um, return if I were a pension fund right now and I were thinking about this I say I have a problem I know I have these liabilities I know what I've assumed on my returns it's still high. I can go lock a lot of this stuff in. I mean, my I think part of it is just don't wait too long, right? You're not going to have this opportunity, this particular opportunity. It, by the way, it might get a lot cheaper. In 2008, it did get cheaper. It would it would have gone down about another 15, I think, percent um, from here. So there there was still downside um, from where it, where it had fallen to um, on the high yield market. The, that's the broad high yield market um, that that went down that much. So in all the other crises, though. You would have been fine, and even in 2008, within within by the end of the year, uh, you would have been flat. So I think this is an easier place to start. Um, and for investors in this market, I think there's it's a it's a very difficult market. It is absolutely this is not me predicting this market at all. We have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of bad news coming out. Uh, I'm not saying it's fully priced. I'm not saying I, I have any crystal ball, but I do know that it's with debt especially it's it's a much more tractable, tractable problem. Can yeah, they pay that? Pay it off. Because I think the problem that many investors are facing today is this psychological barrier, right? You've got these two contrarian things going on, right? On the one hand, you're saying, uh, uh, "Gee, everything, the sky is falling, markets are panicking." You're looking at everything, every decision that you've made <laughs> over the past few years, and virtually all of them, for most people, are looking like bad decisions relative to buying, say, cash or long-duration treasuries, right? That portion of your portfolio, whatever percentage that was, looking great. Everything else probably looks like a mistake right now. Uh, you're probably at the low point and your confidence in your own investment decisions as a result of that. And yet at the same time, at the same time, right, um, you know that at any time, right, you've ever read that book about by Warren Buffett, read Warren Buffett's letters or that biography of Warren Buffett, and always says, you know, buy when there's a crisis, right? Uh, you know, once in a decade opportunities, right? When, you know, be fear, be greedy when others are fearful. And you're looking around and saying, well, everyone's fearful now. I know I should buy, but I just can't do it. You know, I can't pull the trigger. And I think what I like about your argument, Greg, is that pulling the trigger on High quality, high yield bonds just feels a lot easier right now than waiting for the equity markets with the amount of uncertainty we're feeling. Um, and I think that that's, I think, a really good way to start saying, hey, it's time to ease my way into the market. Um, let's start by doing something that I really couldn't do for a long time, which is build an income portfolio, right? I mean, I think that was virtually impossible for the past few years to build a reasonably attractive income portfolio. That's no longer true, right? And, and I think. Uh, uh, now is the time where you know you don't have to go into private credit and do dodgy lending to private equity funds to get a six or a seven or an eight percent yield. You know you can do it in Netflix or Match Group or other pretty high quality corporates. So I think it's a great a great thing for folks to be thinking about uh, as they consider what to do with their uh, investments uh, and how to react to this volatile market. 
Now we're going to start a portion of our chat called the intersection, where I'll ask you a series of questions, which we ask all guests on Real Vision. Greg, is there one person dead or living that you would want to interview more than anyone? If so, who and why? I'd be Harry Truman, <laughs> only because he was forced to make so many difficult decisions uh, while he was in the White House and had so much impact. And I'd just love to talk to him about what that was like. Which decisions in particular uh, come to mind, Greg? Well, I think I think especially the decisions to you know engage in the really the beginning of the Cold War with Russia and what that was like and and, and how you know what a change in in geopolitics that represented. Um, obviously, dropping the bomb was an incredibly difficult decision, um, and um, I always wondered whether it would be something that he uh, questioned or not, given what was going on at the time. What is a book? Uh, or books that changed how you view the world, uh, and how so? Uh, sure, there's a there's a book actually, Non-Zero, um, by Robert Wright, um, and it's really about uh, you know game theory applied to human evolution. But really, it, it it was I read it many many years ago when I was much younger, and it was the my first real exposures to positive and negative sum games, um, and in particular positive and negative sum games in, in human interaction. And there's 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 one anecdote in there about how to play the right way to play uh, a repeated prisoner's dilemma game. And the answer um, and, the, and the winning algorithm is really to cooperate first always. Uh, mm. And then if somebody doesn't cooperate with you at first, never cooperate with them again. Um, and it seems yes. simple and harsh. We're going to see in the private credit and private equity markets. It's yeah. cooperate, 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 and then we'll yeah. see a flip. Yeah, uh, uh, we'll see if 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 uh, the COVID nineteen virus uh, causes a, a sea change in lender lender uh, borrower relations. Uh, as an individual and as a leader in your field, how do you stay engaged and relevant in a world that's moving so quickly? You know, I think uh, I, I, like everybody, I read a lot. Um, um, I think uh, I'm I'm going to potentially devalue that by saying I've gotten a tremendous amount of value from Twitter that I never expected to get. I think FinTwit has exposed me to a huge amount of uh, thought and research that I hadn't seen before, and as a filtering mechanism for identifying stuff, it's amazing. Um, but really, really reading and researching, and and actually um, uh, the research process of going and writing articles has really helped a lot. Uh, and making me think deeply about topics. Some of our guests can tie their success to a key breakthrough. Did you experience a tipping point in your career? Yeah, I don't know if I have anything that dramatic. I will say that several years ago, the decision to learn how to code uh, and build databases uh, opened up um, the ability to answer questions that I had for a very long time, in, in corporate credit specifically, but also the ability to now uh, manipulate data very, very quickly has really changed how I approach my investing and how I, I'm able to solve problems. Who is a person you admire and why? I'm going to give the the pat answer my father and and my mother because they were great parents. You have you have a few kids of your own, Greg. So hopefully that one day they'll uh, grow up to say the same thing about you. What view do you hold that is most controversial in your professional life? Uh, that there are diminishing returns for risk in in, in markets. Excellent. A fitting end to our conversation. Uh, thank you, Greg. Hey there. Since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. 
And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film. We work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.